Our text for the sermon this Lord's Day is taken from Mark chapter 15, verses 35 and 36. There we read the following words. And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And the parallel passage in John 19, I think, would be helpful to read at this time as well. John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled the sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Hungering and thirsting are ordinary desires of every human being. Since the Lord Jesus Christ never sinned, and yet he hungered, he thirsted, and slept, we may assume that such desires for food and drink and rest are not sinful passions in and of themselves, but rather they are desires that God has given to man, whereby man may be satisfied daily with the goodness of God who gives us all things to enjoy. Our desire for these good gifts of God are in part what make us human beings. How blessed we are, dear ones, by our gracious God to have at our fingertips Sufficient food, drink, and clothing, and a bed upon which to lay our heads. So many in the world desire these blessings, but yet have them not with any degree of sufficiency. <clears throat> but when you and I thirst, we can easily get a refreshing drink of water to assuage our thirst. General Stonewall Jackson had developed the grace of thanksgiving to such a degree that he said he never allowed a drink of water to come to his lips, that he did not consciously give praise to the Lord who mercifully satisfied his human desire for water. While Christ hung, from the cross, the humanity of Christ as a fit mediator for mankind was manifested by the extreme thirst 
that overcame him. The Lord Jesus, dear ones, was not just pretending to be a man. He thirsted. The Lord Jesus was not a phantom in a mystical spiritual body. He thirsted. Herein is revealed, dear ones, all the heretical positions that have risen up in ages past that would not grant to Jesus Christ a real human body. They are condemned by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, I thirst. In order for Christ to be our only mediator between God and man, it was absolutely necessary that he be fully God and fully man. The truth of Christ's real humanity is made clear in his thirsting from the cross, just as we see in the Word of God today. Let us consider this Lord's Day the plea of Christ from the cross. I thirst. The main points from our text are these. First of all, the misrepresentation of Christ's words in Mark 15.35. And secondly, the weakness in Christ's words in Mark 15.36. First then, the misrepresentation of Christ's words. Look with me again, if you have your Bibles open, to Mark 15, verse 35. And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elijah. You recall in Mark 15:34, the previous verse, we heard the desperate cry of the Lord Jesus from the cross as he suffered alone the wrath of God for sinners. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We saw how Christ suffered in body and soul as a man for the sins of his people. Since God, as to his essential nature, cannot be tempted with sin, nor can he suffer agony or pain for sin, Christ suffered as a man, but he suffered as no man has ever suffered. He was accounted the chief of sinners by God as he suffered for the guilt and condemnation of sin of unworthy sinners like you and me. Now as we approach our text today, we are again introduced to the reproach and mockery that was heaped upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This again emphasizes that Christ not only suffered as a man in his body, but he also suffered as a man in his soul. In the time of his forsakenness and aloneness there upon the cross, having been forsaken by God and by man, some near the cross tortured his holy soul with the hatred of their cruel words once again. This mockery was based upon the words that the Lord Jesus 
had just uttered in the Aramaic language, the language spoken in Palestine by the Jews of that time, when the Lord said, Eloi, Eloi, which means my God, my God. Those standing near the cross mocked Christ in Mark 15.35 by saying, Behold, he calleth Elias, or Elijah. In the next verse, in Mark 15.36, they continue their mockery, Let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. Now the question to be considered is this. Did these men who reproached Christ intentionally misrepresent the words of the Lord or did they unintentionally misunderstand the words of the Lord? Well, we cannot be absolutely certain, but I would suggest that the answer to this question depends to a large extent upon whom we see here as originating these words of reproach against Christ. Were these the words of the Roman soldiers or were these the words of the Jewish leaders? I would submit that it seems unlikely these words originated with the Roman soldiers. Why do I say that? Because it is not very likely that pagan Roman soldiers would be so well acquainted with biblical eschatology and the relationship Elijah bore as a forerunner to the Messiah. Even if these Roman soldiers had some familiarity with the Aramaic language, which is perhaps somewhat of a stretch, But even if that were the case, their knowledge of Aramaic would not likely have included a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. For that reason, I would suggest that it is much more likely that these mocking words first fell from the lips of the Jewish leaders. And if later the Roman soldiers joined in with this mockery, It was only because they were aping the words of the Jewish leaders. Now let us turn back to the question that we asked earlier. Did these men who reproached Christ intentionally misrepresent the words of the Lord? Or did they unintentionally misunderstand the words of the Lord? Well, if it were the Roman soldiers who originated these scornful words, then I would suggest that it is likely that they, being unfamiliar or less familiar with the Aramaic language, just misunderstood the words of Christ as referring to Elijah. However, if it were the Jewish leaders who originated these words of ridicule, as I believe is most likely the case, then I would suggest that the words of Christ were intentionally misrepresented and turned into a big joke by these Jewish leaders who stood around the cross thinking that they were celebrating the demise of Christ and their, their final victory over Christ. Now what warrant is there 
for this scenario that it was first of all the Jewish leaders who spoke these words and that they intentionally misrepresented the words of Christ <clears throat> well first of all <clears throat> Christ did not utter the words Eloi Eloi under his breath or in a faint whisper the scripture states that as weak as Christ was while hanging upon the cross that he quote cried with a loud voice Eloi Eloi in Mark 15:34 Christ wanted all those present to clearly hear the cry of his aloneness and forsakenness so it is unlikely that the Jewish leaders did not hear and understand what Christ said second <clears throat> There might have been somewhat of a language barrier in the familiarity of the Roman soldiers with the Aramaic language, but that certainly was not the case with the Jewish leaders. That was their native language. That was their first language. If the Jewish leaders heard the utterance of Christ, Eloi, Eloi, as they likely did due to Christ having shouted forth these words from the cross, they could not have simply misunderstood what Christ had said. For Eloi does not mean Elijah in the Aramaic language. Both words, Eliyah, which is Elijah, Eliyah and Eloi begin with that short word L, <clears throat> which means God. <clears throat> but the last syllable in the name Elijah ends with the shortened form of that word Jehovah, Yah. Elijah simply means Jehovah is God. This could not have been, dear ones, a simple misunderstanding on the part of the Jewish religious leaders, assuming they clearly heard the loud cry of the Lord. So what is the point? What difference does it really make whether the words of Christ were unintentionally misunderstood or whether they were intentionally misrepresented well dear ones the intentional misrepresentation is a far more serious aggravation of the mockery that was shown to the Lord it is one thing to laugh at someone because you have misunderstood what they said it is another thing to laugh at someone to make fun of them and to intentionally misrepresent what was said in effect to lie about what was said for it involves not only then cruelty against the Son of God but also lying against the Son of God the character of these Jewish leaders demonstrates they had already at Christ's trial 
intentionally misrepresented the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was nothing new to their character. They sought false witnesses to testify against Christ, knowing they were false witnesses. Their hatred for Jesus Christ there was new, no bounds. And here they celebrate their victory over Christ, or so they falsely believe. And they intentionally misrepresent what Christ had uttered in his prayer to his Father in heaven in order to make the Lord look like a total fool and buffoon. What was really behind this intentional misrepresentation of Christ's words? What was this misrepresentation really intended to convey. Well, since Christ had just made known to all those present that he was forsaken by God in suffering for guilty sinners, the Jewish leaders twisted the words of Christ to mean that he appealed to Elijah to come to his aid because God would not come to his aid. The religious leaders laugh at Christ as if to say, God in whom he trusted will not listen to him. Perhaps Elijah, a mere creature, will come to his rescue. Dear ones, I want you to see ever so clearly here that Christ suffered misrepresentations of the truth so that he might take away the sting from the misrepresentations which we suffer when standing for the truth of Jesus Christ. And he suffered those misrepresentations for the truth in order to forgive us for all the ways we have misrepresented the truth in our lives. And the way we have misrepresented the positions of others in order to make the position look foolish. It has always been the ploy of the enemy to build a straw man and then to destroy it by laughing at the misrepresentation of that position as being absolutely absurd and foolish. It becomes so frustrating at times, I'm sure on the part of many of us to hear the truth of Christ misconstrued and misrepresented. But the text that we are reading now is here to tell us Christ bore that same cross. We are not bearing it for the first time. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is the way, the truth, and the life, bore that same cross. Let me give to you just a couple illustrations or examples of ways in which we are very commonly misrepresented. Because we believe the Bible to teach a separation from ministers and churches that have erred from the truth. 
We are misrepresented to say that these ministers and these churches are not Christian in any sense. This is absolutely false. We do not deny that ministers and churches that err from the truth are Christian as to their being and their essence. We testify that they are erring brethren of whose sin and error we cannot partake without accusing ourselves and condemning ourselves in the same sin. Another example, because we believe the Bible to teach that only faithful, that not only faithful doctrine ought to be a term of communion, but faithful practice as well, which we call historical testimony. That that ought to be a term of communion as well. We are misrepresented to be Romish in following our church tradition rather than the scripture. This is absolutely false. We only follow that testimony of the faithful witnesses and martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ whose testimony is agreeable to our only infallible standard of faith and practice, the Holy Scripture. <clears throat> and I could go on and on and give many other examples as well you could do. But I think that suffices to demonstrate how we, as well, are called upon by Christ to suffer what Christ suffered. But he has removed the sting of that suffering because he has gone before us. Dear ones, Jesus Christ suffered the lying, scorn, and ridicule of others as our teacher. He has taught us that we will certainly endure the same if we walk in his steps as his disciples. But his suffering these lies for his people, dear ones, the fact that he suffered that is efficacious in removing from us all of our misrepresentations of the truth as well. And let us not think that we have never misrepresented the truth, whether as a minister, whether as elders, or whether members of the congregation, we have all been guilty of misrepresenting the truth. Jones, it is not ultimately us about whom others lie when we stand for the truth. They lie against the truth, not against us ultimately. And for this we should mourn and grieve and pray and we should pity them that God would mercifully open their eyes as he has opened our eyes dear ones when the time comes and when the time abounds in misrepresentations of the truth it is not a time in which we ought to boast or take pride as if we have the truth and look at them misrepresenting the truth but as I said we're all guilty at some time or another of the same sin let no such hypocrisy or double standards characterize us for how much more heinous it is for 
others to misrepresent us in our positions as to the truth. And for us then to go out and to do the same thing to them. Dear ones, the truth does not need to hide behind any misrepresentation of the facts. Let us fairly represent even the errors of others. Let us not build straw men. And then let us take those errors as they are in reality to the infallible standard of Holy Scripture that they may be shown to be what they are contrary to God's will. The second main point from our text is this, the weakness in Christ's words. And I read for you from Mark 15, verse 36. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone... Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Shortly after the scornful misrepresentation of Christ's words, the Lord Jesus utters now his fifth saying from the cross. According to John 19.28, I thirst. In Mark 15.36, we only see someone giving to Christ vinegar in order to satisfy his thirst. However, in John 19:28, we see why this man gave the vinegar to Christ. Because Christ had first drawn attention to his overwhelming human desire for something to satisfy his thirst. When was the last recorded instance of Christ having taken any fluid into his body. Well, you may recall that the Lord was offered wine mingled with myrrh when he first arrived at Golgotha to be crucified. But having simply tasted that it was an anesthesia to deaden the pain of having the spikes hammered through his hands and through his feet, he refused to drink of it. For Christ knew he must endure the full extent of suffering in body and in soul as a representative for guilty, undeserving sinners. Now this implies that the vinegar that Christ here drank in Mark 15.36 was not mingled with myrrh, was not an anesthesia but was a diluted sour wine provided for those who hung upon a cross. For if Christ previously refused to drink of wine mingled with myrrh because he would suffer the full extent torment in his body, why would he now partake of it after he had gone through all of that suffering? Proverbs 12.10 12, states that the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. And that is certainly the case here. For the vessel of sour wine 
or as it's called here, vinegar, at the foot of the cross, which was no doubt a vessel that was set at the foot of every cross, the point of every crucifixion. It doesn't seem to be unique to the Lord, but it was set there. was intended to offer a temporary refreshment so as to prolong the agony upon the cross. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The last recorded drink that Christ took was during the previous evening at the supper that Christ had with his disciples. The Lord Jesus had not satisfied his thirst since then. There's no recorded instance of that having been done. Since that time, he had endured the severe bleeding that occurred from the Roman scourge. He had the crown of thorns beaten deep into his skull, no doubt more loss of blood, body fluids. He had, in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat great drops of blood due to the intense suffering of his soul. The spikes that were driven into his hands and into his feet no doubt let out more and more of the blood within his body. And he hung for three hours upon that cross before the world or the land became dark. Those three hours from nine o'clock in the morning till noon, further promoted dehydration under the sun. According to Psalm 22:15, Christ could say, in a very real sense, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of the earth. Christ in his full humanity therefore declares, I thirst. Here was no acting on the part of Christ. Here was no pretending to be thirsty. He uttered these words from the human desire that is true of all men. He who was without any need as to his deity uttered one of the most basic needs as to his humanity. I thirst. How the Son of God, dear ones, lowered himself to the most extreme depths in order to purchase the salvation for undeserving and guilty sinners like you and like me. John 19.28 makes clear that Christ had fulfilled all prophecies concerning his life and death up to that point. One last prophecy remained to be fulfilled and it is cited from Psalm 69.21. Where we read, they gave me also gall 
for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Here once the Lord Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in his obedience and in his suffering that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might not lack in any respect and fall short of that glorious salvation which he purchased for us. Not one stone was left unturned even to his declaring, I thirst. And dear ones, if something so seemingly insignificant was not left unturned, you can be absolutely guaranteed that nothing more important was left unturned in securing the salvation of His people. Beloved, the torments of hell are represented by an insatiable First, in those who suffer the flames of hell. For according to Luke chapter 16, verse 24, the rich man in this parable cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send me Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He didn't ask for a glass of water. He didn't ask for a cup of water. He didn't even ask for a drink of water simply to dip his finger in to water and touch it to his tongue. The torment in hell is so great that that would have been, as it were, refreshment. That was the everlasting thirst, dear ones, that we all deserved due to our own sin and the condemnation that rests upon us. But the Lord Jesus Christ suffered that excruciating thirst that we might be forever delivered from the everlasting thirst endured by all those who suffer in hell. Dear ones, the Lord Jesus Christ is the living water who alone can quench the fires of hell against us who are guilty sinners. Do you realize that you are dying of thirst spiritually according to your nature? Do you realize that you are perishing from an unquenchable, everlasting thirst right now if you do not know Jesus Christ? Do you understand that without the water of life you will perish forever? Not for time, not for a few minutes to be thirsty, but forever in a hell that ushers in an insatiable thirst that can never, ever be quenched. The Lord Jesus Christ invites you today to come to the waters of life and to drink freely 
For he says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Are any of you excluded then from coming and receiving of the water of life freely? You are all invited to come. You will not be able to blame God in that final day of judgment. You are responsible now as you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the invitation that is offered to you to come to Christ to receive the water of life freely. For you who have received the water of life freely already, what evidences are there in your life that you have freely partaken of this water that alone can quench your spiritual thirst? Let me give to you three, very briefly as we close. The first evidence that you have come and you have drank of this water of life is that there will be in your life continual thankfulness for that water of life. Can you imagine someone who had gone a week without water and whose tongue was parched, whose jaw cleaved to his tongue, who could barely swallow because of having no moisture, dehydrated, fever setting in, and the sun continuing to beat down upon his brow, and then to come to an oasis there in the middle of the desert and for one to take out a cup of water and to give to him and for that to quench his thirst and to come and receive again more and more water. Can you imagine that such a, a one would not be thankful for what he had received if he truly understood his desperate condition and yet dear ones we have received something far more glorious something that quenches our thirst for all eternity and can we forget that can we simply go through our day and not be thankful in spite of all the troubles and the trials and the afflictions that come our way can we forget what Christ has given to us the water of life that sages our thirst forevermore. That is one of the evidences that we have drunk of the water of life, a thankful heart. A second evidence 
And I should say, before I move on to the second evidence, if that's an evidence that you have drunk, if that's missing in your life, you had better do some very serious reflection about your faith and in whom is your faith and in whom is your trust. The second evidence that you have partaken of this water of life freely is that you will have a greater thirsting for that water of life every day. If the water of life, dear ones, is the best thing that you have ever tasted, shouldn't you want more and more of it? In one sense, we drink of it and only need to drink of it once as it pertains to our justification. But in another sense, having tasted that water of life as it relates to our justification, we want more of it every single day for our sanctification. And that is an evidence that we have drunk the first time of that water of life. That we want more and more and more of that same water of life. Dear ones, nothing satisfies. Nothing in this world satisfies like this water. Whatever you would hope that would satisfy finally that thirsting in your soul and make you happy and joyful and content, you will never, ever know it if you do not drink of the water of life that Jesus Christ offers. Everything that you achieve in this life will only make you more thirsty for that water of life which you are turning your back upon. Come to the water of life, dear ones, today. Receive of that life which Jesus Christ offers. And thirdly, the third evidence that you have drunk of the water of life is that you're going to desire to come to this meal and to eat of that bread and to drink of that wine. For you know that that pictures that hungering and thirsting in your soul for Jesus Christ that only He can fill. You're going to want to be there. You're not going to want to miss that time unless God in His providence keeps you from doing so. An encouragement to all of you young people, therefore, begin to study the word of truth, to understand it so that you can be examined and if the grace of God is working effectually in your heart, come to this meal. We don't want to keep anyone from coming to this meal who is qualified and able to do so. But do you desire to do so? Do you want to be there? That's an evidence that you have drunk of that water of life freely, that you want to be there. Will you stand with me in prayer? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.